This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on the critical issues facing women, mothers, and families, and the extraordinary work of Moms Rising on our behalf. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON, that's 844-942-7866, and we'd love to hear from you. Have you struggled with the question of whether you can actually afford to go to work after you've had a child? Conversely, have you struggled with the question of whether you can actually stay home with that sick child? Because if you did, you'd be penalized at work. We want to hear your story. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And while you call in, I'm also curious. Did you know that at least 41 million workers, including half of all working moms, can't earn a single paid sick day to stay home when they come down with the flu or need to care for a sick child? Did you know that more U.S. women are dying from pregnancy and childbirth-related causes today than in the past 20 years? And get this, that black women in the U.S. are 243% more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes in this country than white women. And that while 70% of moms with young kids are actually working, 70%, um, their wage gap, especially for women of color, can drop as low as 46 cents to the dollar that a man earns for the same work. I don't know about you, but I was kind of horrified when I saw these statistics, even though I generally know these things to be true. I'm particularly grateful for that reason that today's guest is a woman who helped start an organization that is working every day to address these issues and others that are essential to tens of millions of working moms and their families. Kristen Rowe Finkbinder is executive director, co-founder, and CEO of Moms Rising and board president of the Mom Rising Moms Rising Education Fund. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about her, and then we're going to bring her on the show. Moms Rising is an on-the-ground and online organization with more than a million members, working together to increase family economic security, to end discrimination against women and mothers, and to build a nation where businesses and families can thrive. Kristen has been involved in grassroots engagement and policy analysis for more than two decades. She's the author of Keep Marching, The F-Word, Feminism in Jeopardy, and The Motherhood Manifesto, just to name a few, which she co-authored with Moms Rising co-founder Joan Blades. She's received numerous accolades for her work, including the Coalition on Black Civic Participation, Community Empowerment, and Social Innovation Leadership Award, 21 Leaders for the 21st Century, National Priorities Project Dem- Democracy Champion Award, and the Center for Women and Democracy Healthcare Heroin Award. So with that, I'd like to thank our heroine and welcome her to Women at Work. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. So normally our guests are in an office somewhere calling from, you know, their desks with a stable landline. You're not today. Tell us where you are and why. I am in a hotel lobby in Washington, D.C., because I just left Congress, where I was honored to testify in front of a joint committee for the Paycheck Fairness Act. Holy moly. It is a big day. Um, So I want you to tell me, what was your mission while you were there? What's the the, the Pay Fairness Act? And what were you trying to accomplish with Congress today? 
Well, it was a big day because as we were sitting there as advocates getting ready to testify, we looked at each other and said, you know, how long has it been since the U.S. House has had a hearing on the Paycheck Fairness Act? And, you know, some of us thought maybe a year, maybe two. No, it has been over a decade since the United States House of Representatives took up the issue of paycheck fairness when, in fact, every day in the United States of America, women, especially moms and women of color, are experiencing extreme wage hits, as you mentioned in the introduction. So what's exciting right now is that there are eyes on addressing the issue of unfair pay. And this policy that is moving forward has a lot of support for ending unfair pay in America. So what are some of the the overarching elements of the Paycheck Fairness Act? What are the things that it will particularly target? Well, some of my favorite components, because of course I have favorite components, <laughs> are um, freedom from retaliation. So right now you can get in trouble for talking about your pay with another person in the workforce. And so how will you know if you're experiencing unfair pay if you don't sort of accidentally find out that somebody who's doing the same job as you um, with the same qualifications and the same title is getting a different pay? So this would end retaliation for talking about pay levels. Um, My other favorite thing is that it makes it easier to come forward together collectively to challenge pay discrimination. The people who are experiencing the most extreme pay discrimination in America are low-wage workers, and quarters of low-wage workers are actually women. And so when we look at who gets the biggest hits, it's low-wage workers, and that means you can't afford an attorney. That often means you can't afford the time off. And so this law has provisions in it to make it easier that you can come together as a group, which is exciting, because then you don't have to face those retaliations or those high legal costs on your own. Um, My other favorite provision is it makes it you have to stop using prior salary histories to set current (laughs) histories. And I have just close on that one. You know, just basically what that means is that if you've been paid unfairly in a job right now and your prior salary history is used to set your future salary history, then you're compounding your unfair pay over time. So we're asking that people be able to set their pay based on their actual qualifications and the job title not on any pay that they may have unfairly received in the past. And, you know, it's just, I love the bill. (laughs) I have some stories to share if you want to hear some stories about, you know, what we've heard from our members about why this would be important. I I really do. I want to pause for a second because I have to say, A, I love this bill too. And we've talked (laughs) a lot about these issues on women at work. And I want to point out that there's an important pairing between two of these issues. Um, They're actually obviously all connected. It's why they're part of the same bill. But we've talked a lot about how um, your salary history, if what you're negotiating negotiating for are raises based on a percentage of your salary or a promotion that gives you a percentage jump, um, you'll never catch up from what you're not earning at the moment that you're hired. Your personal gap to both your paycheck and your retirement will never be this. It'll never even out. And so this stops it from the get go by saying your prior salary can't be the the point of origin for what your new salary is going to be. And then the other thing that I want to shine a light on was I wasn't aware that organizations actually had the right to retaliate if you discuss salary. Oh, yes. Well, companies do. And that happens all the time. We hear about that from um, members across the nation. Moms Rising has over a million members. We have members in every state. 
in our nation. And so we do hear about these types of situations happening quite regularly, you know, where people get in trouble for talking about pay in their workplace. And so this really gets rid of that. And that is a very important provision. So that fear can be removed from the culture and mm-hmm. what and women can find the courage to safely ask each other what they're making and explore it across the organization. Yeah, and ask their male colleagues with the same title that they're making, too. (laughs) That's a critical thing, because it's not just what other women are making, it's what men are making within the organization, so you can know what you should expect to be paid for the same work. So how are you getting informed about the necessity of these changes? Oh, uh, you know, when you see the patterns in the wage gap, it is jaw-dropping. And so what that means is, that there are women across the country who are experiencing these unfair pay hits every day. So we get stories and stories and stories of women who have experienced pay gaps, and most of them have figured it out by accident that they're experiencing pay gaps. Um, one of the stories that I shared was about a mom raising member named Laura, and she actually went to college with her husband. They met at Columbia University. They graduated with the same degree on the same day. And they both got jobs at the same agency in the exact same position. And they were dumbfounded by the difference in the salaries that they were given at the beginning. She was paid $5,000 less than he was. And when Laura asked about the discrepancy, she was given the runaround and was told that she had to either accept the pay or they give the job to someone else. And to your point about what happens when you have unfair pay, that $5,000 was just $5,000 that year. But then over time, that compounds. And if she changed jobs, um, she would also have a pay hit if you used your prior salary history. So this is an example of, you know, people saying, hey, I have unfair pay. And the company saying, well, you know, take the job or hit the road. And that's why we need the Paycheck Fairness Act to provide standards and supports for everybody to receive equal pay for equal work. Absolutely. And to put it in cumulative numbers, I was talking to Sally Krawcheck, who pointed out that it can there can be a gap of up to $500,000 by the time we retire of what women have earned and been able to save compared to what men do. And it starts with these kinds of gaps. That yes. that five thousand dollars a year adds up, but it's also how your salary grows from there. It's your social security, and it's what you can save for retirement. So true, and the gaps start early. So what's interesting is that women are actually graduating from college at higher rates than men are right now. Mm-hmm. But when you get one year out, just one year out of college, women are already experiencing wage gaps in the same jobs and same positions. So. It's not about women doing a bad job. I just want to put that out there. Women are great. There was a Pepperdine University study of all 500 Fortune 500 companies over 20 years, and they found that, in fact, when there are more women in leadership, that there are higher corporate profits across a wide spectrum of measures. So, again, more women equals more profits. And then, of course, in the last recession, we saw that hedge funds with women managers lost less money. So women can save your money. And then, of course, women are um, primary consumers in our country. And so we fuel our economy. And when we don't 
have money in our pocketbooks, then it hurts us all. Right, because it doesn't go back into the economy. But I want to back up to a really important point that you made, that the difference in what women are paid has nothing to do with our performance on the job um, or the skills that we're bringing to it. And in fact, and I apologize for not remembering her name, and maybe the team in the booth can look it up. It was an old show we did with a scholar at Temple University who has actually uncovered that the wage gap begins at age 12, as soon as boys and girls go to work because of the social frameworks in which they work. And she made the really compelling case that boys are encouraged to negotiate, boys are offered more money when they begin, and the work that they do is more highly valued. And so the wage gap is a pernicious thing throughout our society. And then when you talk about it in such equal terms, like Laura and her husband, you can see how insane it is. Oh, it's horrible. I mean, we have so many stories about that. And then the negotiation thing is actually a big deal, too, because studies also show that when men negotiate, they often end up better off in terms of higher pay. But when women negotiate, they often get a pay penalty. And Mm -hmm. so we have discrimination sort of woven through our hiring process and our advancement process and our wage selection process. And one of my favorite studies um, is actually of two pieces of paper. And people are like, Kristen, why do you like a study of two pieces of paper? And I'm like, because the two pieces of paper cannot lean in or not lean in. They cannot have confidence or not confidence. They cannot have what some people call, you know, excitement or not excitement. Right, or executive and, presence. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes people blame women. They're like, hey, you just are, you know, not cool enough or something, right? Whatever. It's not true. We're totally <laughs> fine. So the two pieces of paper are exactly the same. They have the exact same resume, the exact same job experiences, and one difference is that one is a mom and the other is a non-mom. And this is a Cornell University study that was also done at Stanford, and they found that 80% less of the time are you hired if you are a mom than a non-mom. And then they also found that for a highly paid job, moms are offered $11,000 less, but dads get a paid boost of $6,000. Holy moly. Yes. So actually, being a mom is a greater predictor of wage and hiring discrimination than being a woman. And if you're a woman of color and a mom, then you get a triple wage hit in that experience as well. So this is why when we look at the statistics around the wage gap, sometimes it's it's um, simply referred to as a 20% wage gap or a 22% wage gap, but that the numbers really differ depending on your demographics, whether or not you're married and what the color of your skin is. Absolutely. And what we're looking at are deep wage hits. And we're also looking at a changed country. So single moms are making about 55 cents to a man's dollar. And it's important for everybody to know that a Johns Hopkins University study found that 57% of births to millennials last year were to single moms. So we're looking at wage hits based on marital status, based on race and ethnicity, and of course, based on gender. And so it's almost as if these um, these biases, subconscious as some may be, conscious as others may be, in the workplace are actually institutionalizing poverty for women in this country. Is that a, yes. an extreme statement or is that fair? That is completely fair, sadly. <laughs> I sometimes say I'm the most cheerful sayer of bad news. Cheerful <laughs> because I've seen the voices of women and women sharing their stories make a huge difference at state legislatures where we're seeing paycheck fairness policies passed, Equal Pay Opportunity Act passed, at states across the country. We're seeing traction happen in Congress, so I'm cheerful about that part. Um, it is important for everybody to know what's going on, though. 
And in fact, if we had pay parity, in other words, if women were paid equally for the equal work that we do, there would be a 50% decline in children who are living in poverty. So we'd lift millions of children out of poverty if we just gave women pay parity. By the way, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner, Executive Director and CEO of Moms Rising. If you've got a question for us or you want to share your own story of how you've na- navigated your own pay challenges in the workplace, we'd really love to hear from you. Our number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So, Kristen, as you're describing the impact of this pay disparity, and you talk about that that critical issue of if moms are not making enough money, then their children are born into and live with in poverty. And it, it's making me think of the list of um, topics, the themes of what Moms Rising is doing. So before we go further into some of these details, I want to take a step back and talk to me about the big picture agenda of Moms Rising and the relationship of things like workplace justice, healthy kids, moms vote, gun safety, that amazing list that you can see on the website, which I highly recommend. Oh, thank you. Um, Well, first of all, sometimes people say, you all have too many issues. And we say, no, we have actually real life lives that we're living. You know, inside the Beltway, sometimes these policies get separated. Well, regularly, they get separated into different pieces of legislation, and people want to think about them entirely separately. But uh, the famous poet Audre Lorde once said, we don't lead single-issue lives, so we don't have a single-issue struggle. And that is so true for women and moms of America. And I also, before we dive into the issues, just want to share how many people these impact. Um, 82% of women in America do have children by the time they're 44 years old, and at some point we have all had a mother. So these policy areas uh, impact everyone, and they are definitely intertwined. Mm -hmm. So we are in the United States of America right now without a lack of paid family medical leave. 177 countries have that. We don't. Child care now costs more than college. Women and moms are among the most fastest-growing incarcerated population, and 50% of kids have been touched by a parent in the criminal justice system. So we work on criminal justice. We also work on maternal justice. Right now we have the only industrialized country in the world where more women are dying in childbirth than in the past, and black women are particularly impacted by maternal mortality. So we're working on that issue area. We work on immigration because two-thirds of women, two-thirds of the people who are coming over at our southern border right now are women and children, 80% of whom would qualify for asylum, according to ICE, if they had access to an attorney. We work on sick days, as you mentioned. You know, 80% of low-wage workers don't have a single paid sick day. And we work on policies that really boost our economy, boost businesses, and boost our families. Because the fact of the matter is, we have a deficit when it comes to a strong infrastructure for working families in America. And our true goal is to make sure every business and family can thrive. So I want to back up for a second, because these are all incredibly important issues. It's very clear to me how interconnected they are. But I want to back up and help get ground us in some of these core concepts, because I think the language is important. Um, and why is why do we talk about workplace justice and not just workplace issues or policies? Because there is a significant lack of fairness in our current workplace, you know, going from pay to discrimination Mm -hmm. to access to policies 
that allow us to be our best at work and at home, we are missing those. So we're looking for actual justice. Um, and, and it's important to think of it that way instead of as support or help or some mm-hmm. of these wimpier words that are used. Because the bottom line is that when we have economic security policies in place, when we have an infrastructure for working families and women, we actually do boost our economy and boost businesses. Because right now, in the past decade, I'm sure you've talked to your listeners about this, but women are 50% of the labor force for mm-hmm. the first time in history. That happened in the past decade. Three quarters of moms are in the labor force, and 64% of whom are the primary breadwinner for their family. So when we're looking at our changed labor force, we're looking at a changed economy, but we don't have changed workplace infrastructure yet. And the lack of that is an injustice. Absolutely. And also, as you're helping us to understand, um, this lack of fairness um, is so entrenched that the gap that's created is not about the abilities, the training, or the willingness to work hard. It really is about the policies and the context in which people are being hired or not and given the benefits that they need in order to balance work and life. It's so true. And also, moms and women are judged more harshly in the labor force. So, for example, there was one study that found that moms are taken off the management track for fewer late days than non-moms. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we're experiencing a lot of injustice and really a lot of implicit bias. So people say, why is there a wage gap? What's going on? Where did that come from? I've been working on this for more than a couple years. (laughs) And I'm convinced now there is no committee of people saying, let's pay women less. It's really a series of unconscious implicit bias against women, judging women unfairly in the labor force, combined with the fact that we don't have that workplace um, infrastructure for working families. So what we need to do is we need to talk about it, like we're talking about it right now on the radio program, and say, hey, if you're hiring, check your bias. You know, we're living in a culture where bias against women and people of color is running rampant. So It's here. We're breathing it. Make sure that when you're doing hiring, you check in with yourself and make sure you're not making any assumptions about the person who is applying for a job or who is maybe up for getting a promotion or who is being having their pay get set. You know, make sure that you, a listener, when you're hiring somebody or giving any type of management decision, um, check in with your own implicit bias and make sure that's not at play. Yeah, because as a matter of fact, well, you're importantly talking about um, there are biases and there are, are policies and structures like basing pay on prior salary that are just fundamentally unfair. Um, and that we know are unfair. But there are also subconscious biases that um, ironically like take the form of what people, what we call benevolent sexism, where people think, oh, somebody just became a mom. They're not gonna, going to want to do the international travel. They're not going to want to strive for a leadership role. And so one of those biases to check at the door is the assumption that you understand the choices that someone else will make. Yes, exactly. And when you are in a biased position, you often don't. So one story that we uh, that I shared today that I think is a good one is a woman named Valerie who's a mom, and she discovered by accident <laughs> that a male coworker who had been hired the same day that she was hired was being paid substantially more, even though they had the same job title and she had more duties and responsibilities. She went, of course, directly to the owner to request an increase to match her coworker's salary. 
And she was told that because her coworker was married and male, he needed a higher income than she did. Oh. And then she pointed out that since he was married and his wife also worked out of the house, he actually had two incomes to cover his bill while she was single and struggling, struggling to keep her head above the water with her two kids. Her boss was cordial but adamant that that was his policy, and she had no choice but to live with it. So you're right. We need structural change, and we need um, cultural change. Yeah, and the two have to work together in order to give the protections that are necessary. I want to come, Absolutely. come back to this definition of justice and the places where it plays out, because you know, I think you've talked very eloquently about the fact that some of these are— issues that are about being fair, doing what's right, but it's also their economic imperatives. With maternal justice, talk about what the unfairness is yielding in matters of life and death for women and kids. Oh, right now we have extreme health disparities. You know, when we look at what's happening with women and moms, it's very clear immediately that gender justice, racial justice, and economic justice are intertwined that one will never happen without the other, and that we really need to take a close look at who's being the most impacted by our failures in our system and our failures in our workplace support, um, and to really make solutions that address those who are most impacted first. And that, I think, the crux of using a justice framework is also using an equity and equality framework. And so that by talking about it in terms of justice, we realize the severity of the impact of not fixing it, um, and also that it's interrelated to other elements in our society. Absolutely. So as you are working to address these things, talk to me a little bit about what are the prongs of Moms Rising? Um, how many of you are working? How many of you are volunteering? Oh, my goodness. So Moms Rising, I am so thrilled to share with you, has grown from a handful of people to over a million people in every state in the nation. And moms are definitely rising. <laughs> I get asked quite often, you know, Kristen, are people kind of getting tired of doing activism? I'm like, no, no, that's not happening. <laughs> more and more people are standing up and speaking out, and more and more people are seeing that their voice has an impact. And I think that's really important. You know, we talked a little bit about how we've seen state policies passed, like the Equal Pay Opportunity Act passed in a few states. And we see, you know, also things like paid family medical leave is passing in different states. And a lot of policy that's really positive is moving forward at the state level. We also just saw women against all odds lead the fight to save health care for 30 million people, not once but twice uh, in the past couple of years, <laughs> and, you know, really speak out and town halls, really make a lot of calls, send those letters, sign those petitions, um, meet with their elected leaders. And so we do see that women are definitely rising. They are not getting tired. We see it in our membership, <laughs> again, is over a million in every state in the nation. And then also we have another wing, and I like to call it our accidental media outlet wing, where we were born the same year as Twitter, 2006. And so we kind of grew up with Twitter, and our audience has been growing significantly and our team actually was doing a year in review for 2018 and found out that we made over a billion, that's 
filled that in is, with a B and Kristen, Prussian in 2018. Kristen, that is incredible. We need to take a short break, but stay with us. And we're going to continue our discussion about Moms Rising, the amazing work they're doing, and how you can get involved in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is our really cherished activist at large, Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner. She's the Executive Director and CEO of Moms Rising and Board President of the Moms Rising Education Fund. Um, Before the break, we were talking with her about why she's in D.C., the importance of the Paycheck Fairness Act, and the combination of issues that women, moms, families across this country are facing. So with all that, Kristen, welcome back to Women at Work. Thanks so much for having me. So great talking with you. So I want to back up for a minute, especially for people who may have just joined us. Describe to me what Moms Rising really is. What is the organization and what's the relationship between your on-the-ground presence, your online presence, your staff, and your volunteers? Well, Moms Rising is an organization of over a billion people in every state in the nation who are working to increase family economic security, decrease discrimination, and build a country where businesses and families can thrive. And so we are active on a wide range of public policies, moving them forward at the city, state, and federal level across the country. And then we're also an accidental media outlet with over 2,000 bloggers, a nationally syndicated radio program, and um, a wide social media reach to an audience of about 7 million. Okay, so just with that, how do people find you online? Just go to the, yes, just go to www.momsrising.org and you can sign up or you can follow us on Twitter (laughs) at Moms Rising or on Facebook or Instagram, anywhere. We're everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Good. But And actually, the story of how you got to be everywhere, not just online, but in states across the country and working on all these issues at the local, state, and national level. Um, I I would love to hear a little bit of the story about how Moms Rising rose, because, you know, if I'm reading the weather correctly, there's an amazing swell of both... Um, cynicism, fury, inspiration, passion, people across the country that want to mobilize to make get their voices heard and make a change. How did you guys do it? Oh, well, we did it because a lot of women came together. Nobody did it alone. And I think that's the most important thing to take away from this. When women put their minds to doing something, then what is seen as impossible becomes possible. So Moms Rising was started in May of 2006 after the book, The Motherhood Manifesto, that Joan Blades and I co-wrote was published, and it was turned into a documentary film. And we got together with a bunch of different groups, first 12 groups, then 24, then 48, and we said, who's opening avenues for the voices of moms to be heard? And 82% of women in America do become moms, and there wasn't anybody there. So the blessing of, you know, around 50 policy groups we started in May of 2006, and we had house parties watching the documentary film, and we started getting active at the local and federal level on moving family economic security policies forward and workplace justice policies forward, and really have been astonished, even though I work in this area, again and again, by the incredible power 
of real-life women outside of the Beltway to make a difference inside the Beltway. Okay, so talk to me. Make it real for me. What are these million women doing? Because you're obviously in front of Congress. The million women are not there with you in person, but I have to imagine they're part of how and why you got there. Oh, yes, absolutely. So what we do is we offer many, many, many different opportunities for people to get involved on this same issue area. We call it layer cake organizing because we like to eat cake. But really (laughs) what we're doing is we're doing multi-level engagement as well as multi-level messaging out to leaders, the media, and the public. Now, why? Why are we doing it that way and why is it effective? Well, women are busy. We all know this. You know, people have very little time just to even get a chance to themselves, much less to do advocacy. So Moms Rising acts as your go-to point where we open an avenue for you to have your voice heard in the way that you have time to do in that moment. So one week, you might only have time to click and sign on a letter online, which would take about 30 seconds. Another week, you might have time to go in and visit a member of Congress and bring forward stories of other women who have experienced the same thing as you on a particular issue, whether it's fair pay, sick days, um, immigration policy, or health care. Or other. Um, another thing you might do is make a phone call, send a text. You might share news on your social media outlet that you have yourself that you're on. You can do a whole wide range of things all on the same issue, but you don't have to do them all at the same time. And that's what's key. If every person does a little bit each week, if they have five seconds or five hours, then it all adds up to make change. Okay, so this is amazing to think about. I've looked at other areas of my life by chucking them down to small components. You know, I started running a marathon. I ran two marathons, but I started by running a mile. Um, And it taught me, at least in that realm, the power of breaking down things into small but steady and repeated actions. So is that really what's at the heart of this? But you're, and with every volunteer, you're amplifying the magnitude of the work? Absolutely. You know, it, it truly adds up. And one of the things I think is really important is the stories add up. Your story, my story, the stories of your listeners make such a big difference because until recently, Congress was only 20% women. So sometimes people didn't really understand what it meant for child care to cost more than college because they hadn't experienced that crisis in the same way themselves. So to bring forward stories, for example, on that and what that meant, what that impact was both economically as well as on the family Um, really has a big difference. It shows our members that when this many people are having the same problem at the same time, we don't have an epidemic of personal failures. All of these issues are commonly blamed on women. You know, it's not our fault. There's not a failure going on. Instead, what we have are structural issues that we can solve together. It shows the media that they can cover what's happening with women as a significant and substantial issue. And it shows elected leaders why the policies and the numbers actually add up to real-life impact. And so all of that together is what creates change. And I'd also imagine that all these voices represent voting blocks. Yes, (laughs) that is true. (laughs) And so whether it's about um, getting the message across around the issues that you're going to vote on or helping to educate decision makers, each of these actions has value. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's whatever time you have. I mean, the idea of a volunteer who is somebody who you know, gives 10, 20, 30 hours a week to a single organization is over. Nobody has that amount of time to give anymore. Especially not working moms. 
Yeah, especially not. And so it's really um, opening up multiple avenues for people to choose what they have time to do. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Kristen Rowe Finkbeiner, Executive Director and CEO of Moms Rising. If you want to join in the conversation, you have a question for Kristen about how to get involved in Moms Rising, the policies they're advocating for, or you just want to share your own story about how y- you are trying to make change happen, give us a ring. We'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is one eight four four wharton That's 844-942-7866. So, Kristen, one of the things I found amazing on the website was um, the a list of things that are happening in various cities and states around the country that help make real for me where your work lands, what the byproduct is of all of these people making a phone call, sending a text, visiting their congressperson. Could you talk to me about some of the achievements that you've you've been able to create at these local levels and, and anchor it for us in the bigger national discussion? Well, one of the areas that's one of my favorite areas lately is child care policy. And one of the reasons why I love talking about it is because there's such a high return on investment and because it's so needed. So right now, as we mentioned, child care costs more than college in the United States of America. And we have parents who cannot afford to pay more, clearly, but child care workers are among some of the lowest paid workers in the country, averaging around $18,000 a year, most of whom are actually moms. And then children are also needing a place to thrive. So parents need a place for their children to be so they can go to work. Children need a place where they can be educated and have access to excellent early learning so they can thrive. And we need to make sure child care workers have living wages. So it's a huge issue, right? And so we do see the voices of moms moving forward, um, access to affordable, high-quality child care. And as we do that, there is a high return on investment. And for every $1 in to child care for families, we see a later return of an average of $8, and that return is because there's less future grade repetitions for children, less future interactions with the criminal justice system, and less need for government programs like TANF as these children grow older. And that is really important because a lot of our policy right now relating to infrastructure for families is penny-wise and pound-foolish. People get worried about investing in family infrastructure because they're worried about the word investment. But it turns out that you actually save a tremendous amount of money and you also open avenues so that more children, more people have an opportunity to thrive in the future. And child care policy is one of those policies that we see more and more people understanding that it is a benefit to businesses, to families, and to our economy to start moving forward to access to affordable, high-quality child care. And we do see that moving forward at the city, state, and even the federal level. Right yeah, I, I loved seeing how in Jersey City, you got the city council recently voted 7 to 1 to pass earned paid sick days. Um, yes. And in Pennsylvania, you helped get sick days passed, paid sick days through Philadelphia City Council. Tell mm-hmm. me how you answer business when they say, I can't afford to pay sick days for my workers. What's the answer that we can give to them? Well, first of all, there's a lot of myths about paid sick days. It's not like every day is a paid sick day. (laughs) (laughs) On average, we're looking at, you know, seven-ish days. Um, Some places it's less. I mean, I think what's important to know is where we're starting from. 
and that is that 80% of low-wage workers don't have access to a single paid sick day, and that is a big deal. Um, and again, two-thirds of minimum-wage workers are women. So we're looking at paid sick days, which is, you know, a half a week or a week that you would be able to take off in order to deal with having strep throat or the flu or something like that, which brings up another issue around return on investment. A number of studies show that presenteeism, which is when you go to work sick, actually costs businesses a tremendous amount of money, actually hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Because when you go to work sick, you get your coworkers sick and also your customers sick. And that has an impact on business. It's so true. We now have a new policy in our office. We hear a sniffle from any one of our colleagues. We send them home. Yeah. We love them, but we don't want them around when they're sick. We love you. Please heal yourself. (laughs) Exactly. We love you. Go away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. And so, you know, I think what's interesting is as we look at, you know, what's happening with our economy, what's happening with women in the labor force, what's happening with our families, the return on investment only gets higher. You know, you really have to go back and look at the fact that we have moved from a manufacturing economy to a consumer economy. And in that economy, uh, women make two-thirds of the purchasing decisions, and 72% of our GDP is based on consumer spending. So if women aren't able to work, if women aren't getting fair pay, then we're not fueling our economy. And then we have a big problem all around. Without a doubt. Um, It's amazing, Kristen, it's amazing to hear how fluent you are in these facts and figures and what a passionate advocate you are for these issues. Makes me glad you're the one testifying in front of Congress. Um, Thank you. I had a lot of questions today. (laughs) I'll bet you did. But I have a related question that hopefully is a little easier to answer, which is there are a lot of us that would go like to go and talk to Congress. How did you personally wind up there? Is it how does that work? Is it an invitation that's extended? Do you write to Congress and ask to be heard? How does one get an audience? Well, you can always ask to meet with your member of Congress anytime. And the important thing is they also have offices in district near you. Every listener right now has an office near their house. So you don't have to fly to Washington, D.C. to go visit your member of Congress. And the other thing that's important is you don't even have to talk only to your member of Congress. The member of Congress has, um, each of them have many people on staff. So you can talk to their staff, too. And they are often working directly on the policies. So you can talk to them and you can have an impact there, too. And you can share your story. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in any issue area to make a difference. So if you have something that you care about, you can just give them a call, find out when they'll be in district or if there's a local member of their staff that could meet with you about the issue that you care about and ask them to have a quick meeting. When you have a quick meeting, you should probably think of the three points you want to get across because they have a lot of quick meetings. And so if you, you know, make your three points before you walk in the door, I find that's always a little bit easier. In terms of testifying in Congress, I'm super honored to have been invited and you kind of have to wait for them to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I would also love to hear your story about how you got involved in activism. Because you, is, this is almost uh, bred into you, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, that's a long story, generations long. Um, My great-grandma was the first president of the Rochester, New York chapter of Planned Parenthood in the time of Susan B. Anthony. And my grandma, who just turned 103 a couple weeks ago. Happy birthday um, to her. That's amazing. I know. She's amazing. She is very smart still, smarter than I am. (laughs) Um, She followed her in the presidency 
And so I actually didn't realize that this was apparently in my mitochondria until I was about 30 years old. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. Everybody does this in my family. So, yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I've been active in politics for a long time. So clearly raised with a headset that um, there are things you should pay attention to and there are ways that you should take the things that you care about and work to advance them. How did you... Yeah, my grandma, I have to share with you one of my favorite things, my grandma, who, again, is 103, and I have to keep saying it because she acts like, well, she says she feels like she's 85. She acts like she's about, I don't know, 25. But <laughs> she always has told me, um, to always try to leave every place you go a little bit better than you found it. So when you go into a public restroom, you wipe the water off the sink. And mm -hmm. when you go into places where there's public policy, you wipe the bad public policy off the books. So I really carried that with me forward, you know, that it's on you to try to leave every place you go better than you found it. That's Love worth it. tweeting about today, folks, if you're listening. Put that out there in the Twitterverse. <laughs> um, so how did you, did you... Just a little bit, because I want to know like a little bit of your resume to share with the listeners, because I think there are a lot of people out there, my daughter for one, who's trying to figure out where to go to college, and she knows she wants to help make the world a better place. What does she major in? What does she study? Where does she go? Um, what did you major in? Where did you study? Oh, my goodness. Well, I actually studied uh, biochemistry and political economy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Right. I was active in uh, the student group when I was in college. So if people are wanting to, you know, be active in politics, be active in policy. I would say follow what calls to you. Listen to yourself and, you know, start getting involved. Again, you don't have to, you know, start getting involved by running for Congress as your first step or running for president. <laughs> or You know, you don't have to take a giant leap forward. It's little steps at a time, learning as you go and importantly, making mistakes. Um, you know, in politics right now, it's a lot harder for people to make mistakes often, but we're not going to learn unless we make mistakes. So to the younger people, I say embrace your failures. If you're really <laughs> trying to leap forward, you're going to screw up because if it was easy, uh, somebody else would have done it already. So, <laughs> That's a great know, point. Your, your heart. <laughs> so let's talk about it for a minute in terms of an essential skill for anybody in the workplace, but particularly if you're going to try and affect change and mobilize people and be an activist, which is public speaking. You know, you, this was probably one of the, the most important public speaking experiences a person could have. Um, how do you prepare for it? And were you always comfortable with public speaking? No, I was not always comfortable with public speaking. And that, again, is um, I really think of it sometimes. My mom actually brought this image to mind for me, which is um, sometimes you have to go to the top of the tallest high dive and you have to jump off, even though you know you're going to do a belly flop and, you know, it's going to hurt and you're probably going to knock the wind out of yourself. And then you're going to, you know, swim to the side and get up out of the pool and then go try again. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not to say it's going to be easy every time, but it is going to say that if you have something to share, if you have something that you want to say, you know, keep trying um, and start out um, as a writer. People always ask, how did you start with writing? And, you know, I started out writing for the small papers that like one or two people read, you know, <laughs> and that just progressively kept repeating and trying and trying and trying over time. Were you um, writing, writing because you wanted to write or were you writing because you had things you wanted to say? 
Um, I was writing because I had things I wanted to say. Nobody ever told me I was a good writer. <laughs> <laughs> but that's I wasn't one of those people that people were like, oh, you should be a writer when you grow up. That was not me. <laughs> but it's really a testimony to the fact that you were fueled by stuff you care about that you wanted to express and make change. And so you just started doing it. And it sounds like you started doing it right in front of you with the opportunities that are available to every student in every school around the country. Yeah, you can write for your school paper. You can write for your local paper. Letters to the editor, too, which are only 200 words, are super powerful. So you can write to your local paper, um, and then you can move to maybe write a column that's maybe 700 or 800 words, you know, or for magazines. It's getting harder and harder to do freelance writing these days because of what's happened with just the media and reporters in general. But at the same time, it's also got easier. It's easier access to even start your own blog, your own podcast. Um, to really use your social media power to get your voice out there. So it's an exciting time to be able to share what you think and what policies you think need to move forward. And, you know, I am not perfect. I'm far, far, far from perfect. I still learn every day. Um, And, you know, today I learned a million trillion things. So I think (laughs) the other thing is just to embrace, you know, constantly learning. So in in your role as a leader of the organization, how do you approach the kind of learning that you need to do to keep the organization growing and moving? Well, we like to think of us as a constantly evolving organization. We're listening, and we're really listening to what people care about across the country, what women and moms care about across the country. And as you listen and you're in dialogue instead of broadcasting to people, And that, I think, is why we've been growing, that we stay in dialogue instead of broadcast. And that's a primary sort of foundational philosophy. Oh, my God. I think it's a philosophy for life in general. So what it really means is that before you decide what are the things that need to be expressed, you go and learn what are people experiencing. Yes. Yes. Lots of listening. But we're constantly listening. We have a metrics meeting every Monday to talk about, you know, what have we heard this past week? So, yes, it's not just one time, you know, you don't just go listen to one <laughs> people, you know, so it's a kind con- you know, having a practice of constantly listening. Okay, so you, you just gave me an in for a very geeky Wharton question, um, which is that it sounds like part of listening is a way that you're using data. Talk to me about that. Yes, actually it is. <laughs> so we listen in four key ways. Um, we're like big sister. We can see, you know, what people are clicking on, how long they stay on there. And sometimes what people do says more than what they tell you they'll do. So you can really tell what people are interested in by what they do. We also listen by doing surveys, which are not scientific because not everybody takes surveys, right? Mm -hmm. But we do listen by surveys. And then we also listen by looking at our subjective feedback that comes in over email, over Twitter, over Facebook, over all kinds of different platforms and look for patterns in that feedback. And then um, the final way we listen is by looking at research. What is the research that shows that we could most quickly close the economic security gaps in America? And so you're taking in... Fortunately, these usually all line up. (laughs) Right. But it means that you're taking in data (laughs) from multiple (laughs) sources, right, so that it can inform the way that you're thinking about what both what the problem is, who's experiencing the problem, and what would be effective to address it. 
Absolutely. So with the few minutes that we have left, um, I wonder if you could give some advice for when we're not at the, we're going to mine our websites for all the analytics and metrics we can get, but we're up close and personal. We're in our living room with the women in our community. We're in our office with the women who are sharing our feelings like we've got to do something about things we're not happy about in this world. What advice can you give to women for how to work well with one another? Well, I think one of the things, and this is not necessarily advice for women, but just for our whole country, is that, um, you know, we all live in such filter bubbles right now that we often don't hear even the same uh, news that other people hear. Mm -hmm. So when we're listening, I think it's important to know that just sitting and listening to somebody who disagrees with you does not mean that you have lost your own personal moral compass, that it's important to listen and then to share your experience and then to listen to their experience as well. So right now in the United States of America, we often stop talking at the point of disagreement, but many, including me, would argue that that's when true dialogue really begins. And of course, the women of America don't agree on everything. And so spending that time to have dialogue with our friends, our families, and our neighbors about how we together can boost all of us is really important. Now, if you're in a group of people who agree, you can start to thinking about what next steps you want to take together, what you want to do together to reach a shared goal. And that's also fun. Yeah, so it's coming back to this core theme of really listening as a way of learning and using that to inform the action that we're going to take going forward. Definitely. Kristen, I am so grateful for the work that you're doing, impressed at everything you're doing. Um, Couldn't be more thrilled to have you join us on the show today. Um, For people who want to learn more and perhaps get involved with Moms Rising, where should they go? Oh, www.momsrising.org. Okay. And you can also, you guys have Twitter handles? Oh, yes. At Moms Rising. And we're also Mamas Con Poder. Um, we're in Spanish language, so we're at Mamas Con Poder, too. Fantastic. So write in. Reach out. Check out their stuff online. It really is so fascinating and informative. Kristen, thank you again, and good luck with everything you're doing. We are all grateful. Oh, thank you. I'm grateful, too. <laughs> and thank, thank you. you. And thank all of you for listening today. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132 and at Laura's Arrow. I'd like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, the fantastic Danielle Bruno, who's sitting in for Patty today, our fantastic sound engineer, Jeff Simmons, and Michelle Abramov, who's been slaving away at her office to help bring women at work to you in all kinds of formats. I'm Laura Arrow, and this is Women at Work. To her inside And we'll shine Yes, we'll shine We will shine We will shine For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.